welcome to this new week's episode of Value Nigeria podcast. It's a podcast where week on week we try to enlighten the listeners by bringing guests who have had experience, who have had quite a few years in the market and who can share experiences and knowledge that can be a blessing even to the listeners. Um, how has your week been? It's another beautiful time together. This week on the podcast as well, in, a, in the same vein, we have another p- guest on the show. He's somebody who I've followed for many, many years. He's someone who I've known, respected, I've learned quite a lot from. And I know he will bring this depth of experience even to the conversation this morning. Um, my guest today is Mr. Adeniyi Ajibola. He's an individual investor. Um, pro- you probably know him better by his online moniker, which he goes by on quite a few investment forums, where he's better known as Wanajo. Um, good morning, sir. Do you mind just um, saying hello to the listeners of the podcast and introducing yourself, sir? Good morning, everybody. Um, Adeni Ajibola is my name. Um, a lot of people know me as Wana Joe. Um, I'm, I'm an engineer by training, so I had my first degree in mechanical engineering at the University of London. Uh, then subsequently, I did my MBA in Manchester Business School. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. It's a very big pleasure. Um, I'll come to the first of my the origins of my relationship with you. But before we do that, sir, um, do you mind just sharing a little bit with the audience about your professional background? Um, I, I, I know you've talked a little bit about engin- being an engineer, but if you could just share a couple of um, institutions that you have worked with. I know you've worked with quite a few oil and gas firms. If you could just share a few, that would be helpful, sir. Okay. Um, so I finished University of Bologna in 1991. Uh, did my youth service at my firm in Nicaragua. Uh, after that, I tried in my master's at University of Ibadan, industrial engineering. I never get to finish that because there's a number of things basically as you strike. Um, my first job was with Pricewaterhouse, now called Pricewaterhouse Coopers. I worked as an um, audit and business advisory consultant. After that, I moved to uh, one of the international oil companies where I've been since 1995. Um, I've been opportunity to work in various parts of the world. Um, so I've worked in Nigeria, I've worked in Asia, and I've been something in the US. All right, perfect. Thank you, thank you very, very much, sir. Thank you very much. I, I'm just wondering here, you, you've mentioned that your educational background is quite in engineering and your first job or your job after NYSC was in audit and business advisory. Can you just share how you were able to make the switch from engineering even to accounting and finance? Um, well, I think it's a, it's a long story which partly says a lot about my growing up. So I decided to study engineering when I was in primary three. Uh, by the time I got to secondary school, uh, I choose it was already settled this subject I'm going to do in jam and things like that. And uh, there are some pressure to go into my thing, but I just found out that uh, I don't have, uh, I have a short attention span, so reading for luminous books was not my thing. But much more importantly was the issue about drawing. 
I, I did not particularly like drawing, and biology then requires drawing. At least that was my understanding. So that's one of the things that made me to be sure that I would go to engineering. Uh, by the time I got to engineering, uh, I completely discovered that there is a lot of drawing in engineering because of technical drawing. That really affected my interest in engineering. Uh, during that period also, uh, uh, I used to read a lot of annual reports. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me then was uh, the picture of somebody like Honor Sunday, the normal lion, the area on their board. So, and this was around the time, I mean, around the 89, 90, where you are having all these uh, new parks singing up in Nigeria after they've uh, opened up the environment. And so there are a lot of people rushing to do MBA management consulting was becoming the insane. So by that time, I think I was in level level then. I've almost decided that, okay, on a Sunday, somebody is that you want to be like. And I would like to go into management consulting. So that's why one of the jobs I was interested in then was the private house. I think it's one of the best places to get trained. Um, so I was employed as uh, a business advisory services consultant. Now you don't need to be an accountant. The number of the partners then uh, were actually engineers. All right. Thank, thank you very much for sharing that uh, story, sir. We we appreciate that. Now, the, the, I remember the first times or the first few times I came across you or your online Monica, which is Wanajo, and that was way back then on Stock Market Nigeria, which was a, an online forum where a lot of people come together to discuss about the stock market and investing. I was still much younger then and still in my formative years. Um, do you want to just reminisce a little bit about the days of Stock Market Nigeria, how you found it and how it was helpful in your development? Um, I think Stock Market Nigeria was uh, was an emergency creation. Uh, so there was this online discussion forum that we have started from and it's just to discuss about stocks and investments and uh, and I enjoyed it, especially the anonymity that you have when people don't know who you are. So we were, we tend to discuss a lot there. Then, um, then I think they have issues with the hosting, and we moved to another one before we now move to stock market Nigeria. And uh, it has been a wonderful experience. I think I've been opportune to meet one or two of the people on that forum. Uh, if I remember correctly, the first one I met, we actually, I was on a trip to, um, I think it was Sweden. And the guy said, look, if you're around, please let us meet up. And the deaf and the wife have to travel many, many kilometers. And uh, it was a place to hear different views and you can see different personalities uh, bringing forth their experience. Uh, and also you can see how people's experience have shaped their outlook to life. So it was a very, it was a, it was a forum that was uh, very, very interesting. I mean, you have people of different character, different temperament, different experience and exposure. And because it's anonymous, you don't really get to know uh, the person, the, the, the personality behind the Monica. So you just make an assumption. And for quite a number of times, the assumptions are quite wrong about who the person is. It was quite fun. Thanks. 
All right. Um, take, taking that a step further, what's what's your thoughts about investment forums and um, how do you think retail investors should approach participating or getting advice from forums such as that? Well, for me, the first thing is you are responsible for your decisions and your actions. Uh, on, on an investor forum, uh, it's the market. Different people are there for different purposes. Uh, one of the good things there is you can get information. Uh, what you do with the information will be your, it's your choice. And I think that's what I would like to tell people. So uh, you need to make your decision based on the available information you have. And in life, we can have different, we can have the same information and reach different conclusions. And there's nothing wrong about it. It's just a, a, a reflection of who you are in terms of your personality, your risk profile, and what your experiences have been. So just make use of the information to reach a decision that uh, aligns with your personality and your personal life. Perfect, perfect. Um, now, I'm just going to jump into the crux of our discussion or what I hope we discuss today. Um, going through a few of your posts and going through a few of the things that I've heard you say in the past, it's obvious that you're someone that has quite a good grasp of competition and how to assess companies for um, their ability to overcome or to succumb to competition. Now, looking at the at capitalism in general, Capital tends to flow from regions of um, low profits to regions of very high profits. Um, so that, that kind of breeds competition. Now, how, how does competition, how does it affect investment returns? How does the competitive landscape of an industry or of a sector, how does that affect the players in that sector? Well, uh, I think it's quite simple. Um Competition means you don't have a monopoly. Competition means uh, uh, there is a limit to how much profiteering you can have. Uh, competition means uh, you have to be on your toes because it's like everybody's struggling. Uh, and if you are not on your toes, you are hot. So for me, what competition does is it reduces the margin and ends to return. Uh, so if you are looking for return, uh, most likely all other things they uh, get better return in an industry where you have very few players. The, the player can uh, increase their margins without anybody being able to do anything about it. And that's why in most countries you have anti-competition laws just to ensure that they are competition and uh, you don't have ridiculous uh, profiteering by players in the industry. All right. Perfect. Now, now for the ordinary retail investors, when they are analyzing companies or when they are looking at companies to invest in, how can they factor in assessing for competition even as they do their research? Well, so, so for me, um, it's just been observant of what is going on. Um, when you look at the number of players and the strength of each player, you will get to understand whether there is actual competition. Because sometimes you have many players, really there is no competition. Mm. Because if I have 20 players 
and uh, one person from shows about 80% of the market, then you know there is no competition. So, and that's why most people advise that if you go for the for the top players in the industry because they tend to dominate and control the market. So if you look at the cement industry in Nigeria, how many players really do we have? And that was the cement probably controls close to 60 or 70 percent of the market. I don't have the number, but they are dominant in that industry. And so because they are dominant, they can fix the price. Because they can fix the price, you will find out that, that their profit margin is quite high compared to other sectors or other industries. So that would be an industry and the company to be interested in if you are looking purely about the competitive landscape. But as we all know, that's not the only thing that forms your opinion. But really, you want to go in an industry where, if you can, you invest in the dominant player there so that you can reach from the high margin that they can probably get because of the, uh, the competitive advantage that they have. Uh, and it's that competitive advantage that you really need to, to understand when you decide to pitch yourself to such a company in that industry because sometimes the advantage you think they have might not be sustainable and so you have some people or some some companies the advantage they have now is uh, protection because of government or politics so how sustainable is that uh, that be if you have a new government who can with just a single pen uh, cancel whatever protection they have so you just need to understand what is driving that competitive advantage and use that to make your decision. All right, sir. Um, um, Professor Michael Potter, who is one of the um, one of the stalwarts in, in the field of competitive advantage and competition analysis, he talked about the five sources of competition. Uh, he talked about the threat of new entrants, the bargaining powers of buyers, the threat of substitutes available for the products, bargaining power of the suppliers, and industry rival. Do, do you mind just f- sharing a few thoughts based on this? Uh? So, uh, they call it the five forces. And uh, I think it's just trying to structure things that we all think about in our daily life. So, I don't think the, the, the anything new, but it's yeah, Professor Michael Potter has just structured it in a way that people could understand. So when we talk about threat of a new age, um, there was a time when making and selling pure water was profitable. In the yes. I mean, uh, the cost of setting up the business was not that much. And there is a need to be filled. So you get into it and you make a lot of money. Uh, and because you are the first person to start it, uh, you can make you can set your price and make hundred percent of it. But what will happen if I know you can make hundred percent in this industry, this business? Uh, I can decide to go into eighty percent. So maybe I'll be the second one to get there. The other person goes there to do sixty percent. Another one goes there to do fifty percent until 
they go there to maybe reduce the magic to what is generally acceptable to all. Everybody trying to survive. So your advantage is reduced if it is easy for people to come into an industry that you are here. And that uh, the barrier of entry uh, can be due to regulation. So, for example, you want to build a refinery. Firstly, you need to have government license. Uh, you want to come to telecoms in Nigeria, you need license. So that's already a barrier. For you to start, you need a license. Uh, sometimes the barrier might be the cost. So if you look at, again, I will use Dangote as an example. Dangote tends to operate in industry that is highly, uh, uh, I don't want to use regulated, but industries where you need government license. So we, from the outset, create a barrier for anybody that wants to get it. The second thing is it goes to sectors that are highly capital intensive. So even when you get the license through political connection, you need a lot of money to come. So that already reduces the number of people that are playing that industry. So that stretch of new entrants, like the example of the pure water business, I mean, everybody just got into it and they are all struggling to survive. But if it is an industry that, yes, even the margin is under percent but for you to come in is very, very tough. Then we will continue to protect that hundred uh, percent money, and that's why you look at the cement industry in Nigeria. I mean, very uh, few industries have the kind of margins that they have, and it's partly because of licensing issues, partly because of the cost of setting up a cement. So that is about the set of uh, of of new Yes. Uh, we also have, I think, another one that I like to talk about is the threat of substitute of products. So if you are in a product where there are easy alternatives, then it's difficult for you to continue to keep your margin. Because if you are selling bread and you are making 100%, I mean, after some time, we start to ask ourselves, must we eat bread? So people start to think about alternatives. What are the alternatives that we have to bread? So if we have alternatives, you stop buying your bread, so your margin will disappear. But if you are in an industry where your products are not easily replaceable, people don't have that much alternative to eat, then when you if you decide to increase your price, you just shout after shouting, they have no choice, they will think buy. So in those kind of industries, you are able to protect your margin. So if you look at the airline industry, for example, if they increase their price, what if it's the Europe, I don't need to fly from London to uh, to Paris or wherever, I can take a train. So because they are alternatives, they are substitutes to that product of transportation that they have, they are very, very low margin industries. And that's why, I mean, it will take a lot of frustration to say you are going to invest in the airline industry. What's the market? How much profit can they make? But there are some industries that there are not that many alternatives. And sometimes, even where there are alternatives is around the product differentiation itself. So there are alternatives to mobile phones. 
But for a lot of reasons, people still prefer the Apple product. And that's why to a very great extent, Apple can protect the margins that they have. But really, the more substitutes available, uh, the more they will eat into your market share. And for you to defend and protect the market share, you might have to drop your price, which affects the margin that you get. All right. Thank you very, very, very much, sir. Thank you, sir. I'm just going to ask an ethical question uh, just to pick your brains on something. Um, using the example of the cement industry that you've talked about, if, if you look at the Dangote cement for an example, the margins, their profit margins which they declare, like for last year, their profit margins were close to about 60 or 65% of their revenues, just off the top of my head. It's something close to that. If you compare that with the margins they make on their international business, you see that there is a gross difference between margins they make in Nigeria and margins internationally. Now, what's the role of government in stepping in when monopoly or when the market is being taken advantage of? What Any thoughts about this, sir? Well, so again, government will tell you that they are providing incentives for people to invest in Nigeria and so... Uh, uh, so they are enjoying certain benefits and things like that. So again, it depends on where you stand as an investor or as a regulator. So if you are on the side of government as a regulator, one of the things you try to do is ensure that there is competition, that there is, uh, there is no monopoly, uh, that there is no price fixing. Uh, you want to ensure that really there is a competitive landscape. So that's your role as government. But for me as an investor, what you want to do is to create a monopoly that allows you to make maximum profit that you can. So you always have that tension between what the regulator is looking at and what an investor is looking at. So when you talk about exit, uh, they've not broken any law, so I can't blame them. Uh, if I would say anything, governments that need to do more around competition and the trust and things like that. So you are correct. Uh, the, the, the margin in that industry is high. And again, it's because there is a monopoly. Uh, it's difficult for new people to come in because of the licensing and because of the cost. So when you are in that industry, you are able to make these margin. All right, perfect. Thank you very much, sir. Now, you've mentioned one key area that investors can look at to determine companies that have this competitive advantage, and that's from the profit margins, looking at the profit the profit after tax as compared to the total revenues that the company made in that period. Um, are there other keys that we could look at from the financial statements that can give us an idea whether one company has a competitive advantage or doesn't? Uh, so, uh, it's not, uh, uh, for me, I, I look at facts behind the figure. So, figures tell you little about a company. Uh, there are many other things that you need to know, and they are not in numbers. So, like I said, um, growing up, one of the things I like to do was reading annual reports. I was so young, I don't understand all the big grammar there. Uh, most times, I just look at the unclaimed dividends and wonder, 
what qualifies these people's name to be in this league. But when you read an annual report, especially when you used to have the um, uh, the chairman statement, uh, the CEO statement, or now if you attend the investor conference call, you look at their strategy. So it's not just about numbers, it's about the strategic thinking. Uh, because even the, uh, the Porter Cyclops was to help his strategy. So you look at them and you start to ask yourself, uh, uh, this company, how strategic are they in what they do? And I'll give you an example. Fresco, uh, many years ago, uh, decided that they are going to have their own power plant. Uh, they are going to generate their own power to run their business. And they are going to use part of the waste product from their process. For me, that's strategic thing. Because it's going to give them a competitive advantage. Uh, part of the uh, Potter Cyclops talk about the gaining power of Energy is one of the uh, inputs for most industries. And what they've done is to look at a way to supply that energy at a very good cost for them now. So instead of depending on generators powered by diesel, they come for a cheaper option. And that cheaper option will translate to the improved market. So when you see a company making such strategic decision or investment, that already gives you an indication of what they are planning to do. Um, when GTB decided that uh, there is a, there's a lot of competition in the banking sector and the fintechs are trying to eat into their business. And because they are just a bank, uh, they are limited by what they can do. And so they made a strategic decision to become an old coach. And based on that, they are going to be having fintech also that can compete uh, with the existing fintech. They are going to have PFAs that can compete with other PFAs. So for me, that's a strategic decision that they made that should allow them to to beat the competition that they have in the banking sector. And you will see that over time, uh, other banks have started going to that, in that direction. Uh, one of the things you also try to do is to look at the trend, global trend. What direction do you think the world is moving to? And if you see a company that can position itself uh, in readiness for such shift or for such trend, then you expect that if they are the first entrance into that into that sector or that area, um, you expect them that they should be able to bank a, a lot of profit or at least have big margin to play with. Innovation is another thing you want to look at. How innovative is the company that you are in? I mean, a company that is not innovative, it does not matter how much uh, they are doing now, uh, they are going to get caught up uh, uh, with the competition due to the changing dynamics uh, around. And this innovation can also be in terms of technology. The example I always give was, I mean, there was a time you want to type your project, you want to type a letter, anything you want to do, you just need to panic the type it, or else your work is not getting done. So if I be 
need, there is money, and I set up a typing pool for everybody to come and be typing, and they're making a lot of money. And I ignore the global trend that, well, we are moving towards where you don't need a typist again. You can do those things by yourself. You are moving towards where you don't even need a computer. Now, everything you need to do, you can do it on your phone. So, you, if an industry just thinks we just, we are producing typewriters or I'm providing service of a typist and I'm not innovative enough to think of where the world is moving to and to position myself there. It's not only clocking that will be done, the company might not be in existence again. I mean, if you ask people now, this is a typewriter before, most of them, the answer might be no. But there was a time when that was the money spinner. So when you look at a company, uh, and the financial statement is telling you about yesterday. But when you want to invest, you are investing for the future. So the financial report you are looking at is a lagging indicator. Uh, so you need to look at things that are leading indicators of what that company is likely going to look like tomorrow or in the future. And innovation is key. And one way to test that is when you look at people in the board or in the management of, um, of such a company. As a person, there are some people, once I see them on the board, I don't think that. You know, no matter how lucrative uh, the investment proposal or proposition because I don't trust them, I don't trust their ideals, I don't have confidence that they can lead this company in the right direction. So in summary, it's not all about numbers, uh, there are sometimes you need to look at things that are not in figure uh, for you to make your investment Wow, thank you very, very much for sharing all that. That was a, a huge education. Thank you, sir. Um, as we just begin to wind down the discussion, I'm conscious of your time. Um, you, you've seen a lot of investors come and go. You've seen quite a lot happen in the investment space. Are there mistakes that you've seen over the years that retail investors keep making year on year? Maybe it just keeps coming in a new fashion every every single time. Um do you just want to share some mistakes that you've seen investors make and some possible corrections they could make to those mistakes? Um, I think most people start investing without having a plan. Um, just getting we want to make money. And uh, there are many ways to make money. So uh, you need to be clear what, what you are doing, why you are doing it. And I think that is very, very important. I always advocate that people also understand their personality. Uh, because your personality would determine how you respond when you see uh, upside and downside risk. So I use, I'm used to the term of upside risk, which is what we typically call risk. And uh, upside risk, which are opportunities. So you have the downside and the upside. Now, how you react is based on your personality. And people need to understand who they are. Because the, the, your personality will determine how you can cope and how you respond to different things. Um, I've also seen people invest that sort of sentiment. I can still remember the first 
shared that my father bought for me was in the community bank in our local government that they are floating. I think it's better five thousand or ten thousand and which was big money then to buy the shares from. Was there any due diligence done? No. So it was purely out of sentiment. And there are people that also invest in that. It's out of sentiment. Or even sometimes it's because they had a off stock. Uh, they say this stock is uh, going to pay, uh, gain 50% in one month and they rush to buy. And this was very, very common, I think, around the 2005, 2006, 2007 in Nigeria and then, when they would tell you, oh, there is this company, they are going to do an IPO and they are going to return 100% when they are listed and people go to buy. I mean, some of those companies have no office. Some of them are not, they don't have an audited account for years. And people are rushing to buy. Why? Because they said it's going to gain in price. Are you different from somebody who is gambling? Then you have people that don't even understand the underlying business. Like I said, I believe in fact behind it. People need to understand the underlying business so that you know how that company, how that business is making money. If somebody is telling you a bringing to you a business proposal, you need to ask yourself, what are they doing and how will they make this money? So on some of the forums I used to joke about it a year ago. I mean you want to set up a farm, you place your head office with the most expensive part of Nigeria. That to me is already a, a signal. Now there are many, I mean, there is no barrier of entry to agree to Nigeria. So you need to ask yourself, these people that are promising you this would be done, what are they going to do differently? That will be able, that will allow them to be able to beat the competition. That is already there. What innovation, what technology, what new thing are they bringing to play in that sector, in that industry? But not. So we don't ask the questions, we just look at the response that, uh, that is being promised and we invest. What I tell people is there is a relationship between risk and return. Most often, the higher the risk, the higher the return and but sometimes, by virtue of who you are, by virtue of your financial plan, you don't even need to take that to risk. You don't need that amount of return to meet your objective. So why take on additional risk for returns that you don't need? So I think people need to know themselves so that they understand their plan and they know the risk that they have. They need to understand the business that they are investing in. So that they have a good understanding of that, how that business makes money. When your data is makes money, when something is going wrong, you will easily see. You don't need to wait till when the financials are out before you know that something is actually wrong. I mean, if what you do, again, I make measure of these people here, they tell you they have a fan. How many of their products have you seen around? So when you go to shop like, do you see any of their products? When you go to any market, you see any of their products. So how are they making money if their products are not there? Where is the money going to come from? So I think those are the areas where investors need to focus on. 
I'm not saying everybody and I mean that this frank about this in the Nigerian environment, you don't need that much sophistication to know goods that are moving. I mean, if I go to a store and I stay there for like 10, 15 minutes, I will have an idea of goods that catch people's attention. And I can find out who are the people producing goods. If I go to a market, you can just speak to the traders and you get an understanding of which goods are moving. So that will give you an idea of those that have the competitive advantage in that industrial sector, even before we start to crunch numbers. Because people crunch a lot of numbers without even understanding what those numbers mean and where those numbers are coming from. And like I said, numbers are lagging in the industry. And you are investing for the future. So the things that you need to know as touching the future are the things that should guide you in making decisions. And a lot of people also make decisions out of emotion. Uh, because my friend is buying a muscle buying. Those are mistakes that we can easily avoid. Thank you very much, sir. It's been a very big pleasure even to spend the, the past um, 40 minutes thereabouts um, having this conversation with you. It's been a very productive time. Um, just before I let you go, any last words that you just want to leave with the investors? If you could summarize everything we've talked about today into one or two sentences, what do you want to leave with the retail investors listening to this, sir? Um, I would say slow and steady wins the race. But that's where fast and steady is not around. Uh, investment is a journey to destination. So be clear about your destination. Don't take on risks that you don't need. Be focused on where you are going in terms of your destination. Don't be patterned by the daily fluctuations in the market because you are on a journey and you need to be focused as to where you are going. I think that will summarize what I think as uh, investors you should focus on. And don't take on business that you don't need. Perfect, perfect. Thank you very, very much, sir, for your time this morning. Um, I do hope that possibly sometime in future, I, I always like to leave this open, uh, sometime in future, probably we can bring you back to the podcast and have another conversation if we can find the time on your schedule for that, sir. No problem. It's a, it's a, a privilege to be able to share experience with people. I also like Thank you, sir.